Well, today, as we study Psalm 139, we will see some wonderful things about God. He is huge. He is wonderful. He is beyond our imaginations. You know, as I was contemplating this psalm today, and I was preparing myself for communion, and and thinking about the last year, and, and church, and the fellowship we've had, uh, I was thanking God for you. I thank Him for the opportunities that He's given us all to declare His Word, to witness to Him, to the splendor, to the majesty of God, to tell others about Him. Thankful for the opportunities, Reed and I, to relax, enjoy one another's company, to talk, to visit, to worship. And uh, I'd have to say, after reviewing all these things, once again, as a church family, we are very blessed. We're very blessed. There's no doubt that God is working uh, with us and in us and through us, working for us as we patiently wait on His return. May God continue to protect us and sanctify us, make us more like Christ. You know, we can be certain that God is Emmanuel. He is God with us. And today we'll find out in studying this sermon that we are never alone. We're never alone. Hebrews 13 verses 5 and 6 says, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you, so that we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What will man do to me? We're not alone. And those of us who are Christians never need to question whether God is with us or whether He's near us. And today I'd like to take a few moments to encourage you with that promise from God. You know, the world is a very dark, a very lonely place. I realize many of you here from week to week probably experience loneliness. This is a fallen and sinful world. It's probably impossible to eradicate loneliness from our lives. The problem is man is so alienated by sin... You know, both from God and from one another, the feelings of loneliness are epidemic in our society. We can't escape the darkness, the loneliness, no matter how hard we try. But we try. We have invented gadgets, contraptions to keep us in touch. There was the telegraph, then the telephone. You remember pagers? Cell phones that you could finally carry with you all the time. Now the internet. And there's the grand pinnacle of them all, Facebook. Surely that will alleviate our loneliness, right? You can interact with the world continuously, day or night, any hour of the day. No, that doesn't work either. Sooner or later, you realize that besides your personal circle, those who check in with you regularly on Facebook and rarely hear from otherwise, you realize the world really isn't listening. Actually, with all the modern devices, we appear to be more alienated from one another than we ever have been before. We retract into our lives. As a result, we're more and more alone than we ever have been, possibly. I wonder... When I think about it, what this generation would do if we were stuck out on the little house on the prairie, out in the middle of nowhere, 
no phone, no cell service out in the middle of Minnesota, just living our lives, you know what? We'd do just fine. After two or three days of withdrawal, all that constant communication uh, is probably done more harm than good. It's made us more anxious, more worrisome, and more lonely the more information that we get. You know what the problem is? In our loneliness, in our turmoil, in our struggling, in our suffering, everybody is turning their attention towards inanimate objects and about what other people are saying rather than about what God is saying. We've stopped listening for God in our loneliness. King David doesn't do that here. By comparison, do you know what loneliness has caused the psalmist to do? When they felt alone, they didn't have to log on to the internet to see what the next thing new was. They knew nothing new was under the sun. No, loneliness didn't cause them to seek affirmation from one another. It caused them to seek God. Even renowned King David experienced loneliness, we know, on a number of occasions. Severe loneliness, running for his life, hiding in caves, battling anxiety. Sometimes he experienced overwhelming fear. And if there's ever been any man in the world that understands loneliness better than King David, it could only be our Lord Jesus Christ. As he hung alone on that cross, abandoned by man, forsaken by the world. There's no way we can relate to that level of abandonment as Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Aren't you glad as a Christian you'll never have to feel that kind of loneliness, that kind of pain? God promises you will never be alone. This is because God is present with you all the time. The presence of God is a concept worn throughout, or uh, clear throughout Psalm 139. It's woven through it. In this psalm, we find that God is what we call omnipresent. That means the Spirit, well, he, He's everywhere. He's just everywhere, all the time. And we learn that He is also what they call omniscient. All that means is he knows everything. Can you imagine a God that is everywhere and knows everything? He knows exactly where you are. He knows exactly what struggles you are having today. Physically, emotionally, financially, spiritually. He knows what's coming down the pike before you do. He promises he'll be there to help you overcome it, even if he has to resort to dispatch dispatching angels imagine that you know Abraham's nephew nephew Lot he was in a perilous situation wasn't he God sent a crack team of angels to extract him and his whole family when Lot was in need he needed to be extracted from Sodom for its ungodliness in 2nd Peter chapter 2 we read God condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to destruction by reducing them to ashes Listen to this. Having made them an example to those who would live ungodly lives thereafter. 
And if he rescued righteous Lot, oppressed by the same sensual conduct of unprincipled men, Scripture says, for by what he saw and heard, that righteous man, while living among them, felt his righteous soul tormented day after day by their lawless deeds. Then he adds, But then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials. God is ready to rescue the righteous from trials. He did so with Lot. Was sending angels to Lot an isolated occurrence? Is that just an Old Testament kind of thing going on there? No. Hebrews 1 uh, verse 14 says in the New Testament, it tells us angels are what? It says there, are they not all ministering spirits sent out to render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation? You know, God has a crack team of angels waiting to be dispatched at his call to intervene in your situation. You know, when I was going through aircraft mechanics school back in the 80s, um, this was when the Cold War was still going on with Russia, Uh, The school that I went to was located on an airport in Fargo, the main airport. And right next door to this uh, aviation maintenance school was the North Dakota Air National Guard. And it was interesting because we'd see the jets take off and uh, the maneuvers that they'd do and they'd come in. And at that time, they flew an interceptor that was known as the F-4 Phantom. Anybody familiar with that? And as an impressive plane, still one of the fastest fighter jets ever built. And uh, they had these phantoms stationed up in North Dakota because it was close to Canada. And they felt if an invasion came over the top of the globe, which would have been the shortest distance into the mainland United States, that they wanted to have interceptors up at the, uh, up at the border there in North Dakota ready to intercept as quickly as possible. Uh, They still have interceptors there of a different variety. But on one occasion, we got to go into the test cell of the engines. That's where they take the engines out of the planes, and they hook them up to fuel and everything. They chain them down, and they take them to full power after they've been overhauled so that they can see that everything functions correctly and doesn't just fly apart. And we went in, and uh, they turned all the lights out. And the power that came out of the back of that engine at full afterburner was just, it was stunning. The pulses that came off the back of that engine in the dark. And then we thought, wow, there's two of these that go into that airplane. Two of these go into that airplane. And we're told that these interceptors, some of them, they had a special well-guarded shack where, uh, I think they called it the ready shed. And these were fully armored ready to take off, sits at the end of the runway. They had jets in there with pilots in their gear, ready to get in 24-7, 365. And they said that they could be in the planes and off the ground, I think, in three minutes. Three minutes. Very impressive, very impressive. Uh, Air National Guard was was quite an outfit. Um, You know what? That is nothing compared to God's Air National Guard. When he determines a need, his angels are there in an instant. God is ready to intervene in your life, and you're never alone. And I, 
as I was studying this, I, I found it insightful to look into the word alone as it's used in the Bible. You know, do you think alone is, is a concept that is, is very often found? I'm not, I'm not talking about lonely. Lonely is an emotion. It describes a, a state that you feel. Alone, by comparison then, is a, a location or a situation where no one else is present. Indicates not being in someone else's company. The Bible, Old and New Testament, does not speak of a believer being completely alone. It doesn't. At least in the sense that you're entirely abandoned. You know, isn't that remarkable? Even when you are alone, you're not alone. God's everywhere. Consider what Jesus said to his disciples in preparation for his crucifixion. He was preparing them. There could have been no greater isolation than Christ on the cross when he died for our sins. But he told them, Behold, an hour is coming and has already come for you to be scattered, he said to the disciples, each to his home, and to leave me alone. Then he adds, And yet I am not alone, because the Father is with me. For the Christian, there is no alone. You never need to fear that. God will never desert his beloved children. Look with me at Psalm 139 as we observe King David's take on things. In verse 1, King David marvels at what's described by theologians as God's omniscience. That means all-knowing, as I said earlier. Nothing exists outside God's realm of knowledge. Jesus said that not even a sparrow falls to the ground without God knowing it. And each of you is worth what? Much more than many sparrows. Verse 1 of Psalm 139, O Lord, you have searched me and know me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You understand my thought from afar. You scrutinize my path and my lying down and are intimately acquainted with all my ways. Even before there is a word on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all. In this passage, we find a number of contrasts. And uh, the first amplifies the breadth of God's interest in you personally. He's interested in every decision of your life, everything you do. David articulates this by stating that whether he decides to sit or whether he decides to rise, opposites, that God understands David's every thought. And this says that God does it from afar. Now don't let that confuse you. Don't let it fool you into thinking that God is somehow in some far distant galaxy sitting on a monitor just looking at people. Afar in this passage doesn't imply distance. It implies time. It's a measurement of time, and it indicates that God is actually very close. It means God knows your thoughts and your decisions long before you even think them. That crisis you just encountered that might have caught you by surprise, it didn't catch God by surprise. He's intervening at that crisis before you're even there. He knew about it. He's already adjusted circumstances beforehand to compensate for your decisions, even the really dumb ones. He is there. 
He scrutinizes your path. He knows where you're going before you go. David says, even when you're lying down on your pillow to rest, he's scrutinizing your thoughts as you daydream. The text says he is intimately acquainted with you in everything. The point here is God knows it all. God knows it all. And that concept troubles a whole lot of people. And it's not only because God knows all of our thoughts. That's troubling enough. For us as sinners, we look at that and like, now that's troubling. No, what I think troubles people sometimes even more, especially non-Christians, is they doubt God's ability to know everything. They say to themselves, oh, he could never know everything. So they're left with no other option except to doubt Scripture in that situation. That's where that theology leads them. How can just one divine person know everything about everybody? All the time. That just doesn't seem plausible to our minds, does it? You know what the problem is? The problem is is that we visualize and imagine God in the likeness of man rather than visualizing God as a creator of man. We are a reflection of God. We reflect His attributes. We were made in the image of God. That's why we think. That's why we create. That's why we love. It's why we have emotions. It's because we reflect what He is. God says in Isaiah chapter 55, For my thoughts are not like your thoughts, God says, nor are my ways your ways declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. Way higher than our thoughts. Infinitely higher than our thoughts. The truth is that our brains are designed by our Creator to function in a way that reflects God's intellect. But we don't duplicate it. We're not a replication of of God's thinking. We are a reflection of it. God doesn't have a physical brain that limits him. God's spirit, he's not flesh. He became flesh and dwelt among us. But God is spirit. He isn't limited by a maximum level of capacity to understand as we are. What our minds do, what they're designed to do, is to mimic and reflect how God thinks. It's a created organ. That's all it is. God made it, and it facilitates our our need for intelligence. But God created the mind for a purpose in order to communicate with us. It wasn't to replicate what He is. God's not limited by the meager capacities of our brain. His spirit is not limited. His capacities are not limited. He does not have a set number of RAM that He has in His head, and that He maxes out. There is no maxing out with God. And he doesn't have to continually rely upon those games that we use to improve our memory, name recognition and other things that we try to remember. Um, Who are you again? God doesn't suffer with that. He's not a fallen human being. He's not like us. But think for a moment, just as a reflection, and I'd, I'd say a dull reflection because of sin, a dull reflection of God's intelligence. Look at what man can accomplish. 
The feeble human mind has created advanced computers to the point where an airplane can take off halfway across the world and navigate safely to its location, pull up to the gate and park without any pilot on board. That's amazing. That's a result of just a dim reflection of God's intelligence. Think about that for a moment. Why would a creature, a creature that supposedly evolved, even want to make anything like that? Why would anyone want to create anything like that? It's because we're reflecting the intelligence of our designer. We didn't evolve. Instead, we reflect his intelligence. We mimic his memory. Imperfectly. Yes, it's imperfectly. But spectacular nonetheless. You know, animals would never do such a thing. Animals would never want to. They'd never attempt to. That's not what their purpose is in life. They're not a reflection of the image of God. They don't exist for the purpose to create. From what I've seen, most of them just eat and sleep. But if you still doubt the idea that God can know everything intimately about you, consider this. Do you think that our government has the ability to listen in to what we are saying here right now? Do you believe it's theoretically possible that they can place listening devices in every church across the country and listen to what's going on in every church across the country? Theoretically, is that possible to hear what's going on? Let's take it one step further. Do you believe that the technology is in place? It is available to where they could insert a microchip into every human being so that that the government can precisely track every individual no matter where they go on the globe. Pierre just blew it for me. My next line is, you better believe it because you're walking around with a cell phone. That's great. Exactly. Think about it. All of this is accomplished by sinful, fallen minds. Let me remind you, minds that are part of our national government. Not always the cream of the crop. (laughs) Nonetheless, that is amazing. The technology is in place. They can listen anywhere they want to, all the time, without people knowing it. They can track anywhere that you go. Considering the technology as it is today, you know what? It is not a gigantic leap to think that God can do the same thing. When we're just a dim, sinful, fallen reflection, and we're able to create mechanisms to do this, oh God, God knows everything. God knows everything that's going on. You are never alone. Well, let's look then at God's omnipresence. Is he spiritually present everywhere? Let's look at verse 5 through 10. David writes, You've enclosed me behind and before, and laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is too high. I cannot attain to it. Where can I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, 
you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, behold, you're there too. If I take the wings of the dawn, if I dwell in the remotest part of the sea, even there your hand will lead me, and your right hand will lay hold of me. Everywhere. Everywhere. You know, Jonah tried to escape God. Even in the belly of a whale, tracked him right down, right, Pierre? God is right there. His hand is there. Do you know that a CBS poll suggests that that nearly 80% of Americans believe in angels? Nearly 80%. In fact, ABC then reports that 55% believe that there is at least one angel assigned to them. What would that be called? A guardian angel, yes. That explains the popularity of that hit TV show, Touched by an Angel. You know, people strongly feel in some way that angels protect them. And we know there's some scriptural evidence to that, of course, under God's direction. But angels don't work autonomously. They're ministering spirits sent out by God to render aid to the saints. But you know, irrespectively, whether God does it with his hand, as David describes, or whether he sends angels to do it, as he restrains that truck from hitting your car... He's protecting you at all times. God is there all the time. He is everywhere with you in your crisis. You're never alone. Again, we see these opposites that we talked about earlier. In verse 5 it says, Lord, you've enclosed me in front and behind entirely. You are fully enclosed. Nothing can touch you that God hasn't permitted to touch you. And you can trust God. That's discovered in the book of Job. You know, in chapter 1, Satan said to the Lord, Does not Job fear God for nothing? Have you not built a hedge about him in his house and all that he has on every side? Remember, it was necessary for God to permit Job to be touched by Satan, to be tempted by him, to test him. God is physically protecting you. He will never let you be tempted or tested beyond what you can handle. You're never left alone. So now that we we realize that God knows everything about you intimately, scary. He's always near to protect you physically. We know that. Is he concerned about you emotionally? Verses 11 and 12 provide the answer to that. It says... uh, And we know this from the record that King David experienced periods of extreme emotional darkness. And he says, If I say, surely the darkness will overwhelm me, and the light around me will be night. You ever said that to yourself? In despair? Surely this is going to overtake me. The darkness is too much to bear. But David says, Even the darkness is not dark to you. And the night is as bright as day to you. Darkness and light are alike to you. God isn't hindered by darkness. If you felt that it's overwhelmed you, and and that's understandable, the world is a very dark place. It's filled with sin and conflict and disease and death. Perhaps you feel that burden today. It may be a result of your own sin. It might be a consequence of someone else's sin that has now reflected, diverted over to you. 
It might be financial stresses that you're, you say, these are outside of my control. It might be family members who are suffering. fact is, the world is a very, very dark place, but you're not alone in your darkness. And David says, even the darkness is not dark to God. And the night is the bright of day. Darkness has no influence and no control over God. And He is there with you in that dark hour. Certainly there are going to be periods where you feel alone and empty. We all understand that. And God is right there next to you until that point where Jesus comes back into your life and sheds the light on the situation. You'll understand it differently. You'll understand why you were tested. When the light comes in, you're like, I know now why he tested me there, so I would not fail over here. God doesn't leave you alone. He sends the light. And John chapter 1 tells us that Jesus is the light of the world. It says, and in him was life, and the, light, and the life was the light of man. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. You know, you've probably heard that, that analogy of no matter how much darkness that you let into a lighted room, that darkness can't extinguish it. Yet you just crack the door into a darkened room and let the light in, and it extinguishes the darkness. It immediately overtakes anything dark. When we're in our darkest hour, we need to allow the light to come in. Friends, this is a very dark world. We're back in the age that that God said about Noah, where every thought of man is continually evil all the time. Everywhere you turn, sin is eating at you. It eats at you from the outside. It eats at us from the inside. If your life turns dark and you're feeling alone, we need to let in the light. We don't let in the light by cracking open a door to let in visible light. We do it by cracking out the scriptures and letting the word of God be a lamp as to our feet and to shine into our hearts. To know that in a dark world we don't walk in darkness. Darkness doesn't come from God. 1 John 1, 5 says, God is light, light And in Him, there is no darkness at all. Darkness, that comes from the world. Listen to how David responds to the darkness that's in the world, that's encroaching upon us. It was encroaching upon him. You can just pan down to verse 17. Same psalm. He says, How precious also are your thoughts to me, O God! How vast is the sum of them! If I should count them, they would outnumber the sand. When I awake, I am still with you. And then he's troubled. It says, Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God! Depart from me then, men of bloodshed, for they speak against you wickedly, and your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with the utmost hatred. Wow. They become my enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. 
Try me and know my anxious thoughts. Then he reflects on himself. He says, see if there's any hurtful way in me and lead me in thy everlasting way. In thinking about God's presence in his darkest times, King David looks at Scripture and says, I need to deny darkness. I need to reflect upon myself. And I need to live in God's everlasting way. It is a dark world. You're not going to escape it. Not until Christ comes again or until we go home to be with him. In the meantime, we need to let in the light. We need to look at God's word. We need to examine ourselves. We examine our sins. We're not being hypocrites out there. In a few moments, we're going to take communion. I'm going to ask the men to come forward at this time. And we need to reflect upon our sinfulness, our darkness. Even as Christians... We can't escape it entirely. You know, the sin of darkness, the darkness in sin did not surprise Christ. It should not surprise you. Darkness did not overwhelm Christ. As a Christian, it will not overwhelm you. If you're not a Christian, well then, the darkness will ultimately overtake you. You need to be saved. Scripture says that that God rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of His beloved Son. God accomplished that rescue by taking the punishment that we deserve for our sins, for our own personal darkness, and He poured out the punishment on His sinless Son in our place. But the darkness did not overtake Christ. It could not hold Him. He defeated it and rose from the dead. He suffered torture and humiliation and loneliness so that we will never have to be alone. This is one reason on the first Sunday of each month we commemorate the fact that Jesus Christ died for our sins, that he graciously spared us what we deserve, which is eternal damnation, by chastening his own son. The prophet Isaiah said, But he, meaning Jesus, was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him. And by his scourging we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. Nathan, would you pray before distributing the bread? In the night in which he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took the bread. And after he had given thanks, he broke it. He said, this is my body given for you. Do this 
in remembrance of me. As the light of the world, he provides hope to every desperate, agonizing individual. He loves you enough to die for you. God loves you enough to send his son for you. In describing the crucifixion, the Gospel of Luke records this in chapter 23. Now there was also an inscription above Jesus that said, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged there was hurling abuse at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other answered and rebuking him said, Do you not even fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed are suffering justly, that man said, for we are receiving what we deserve for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he was saying, Jesus, remember me when you come to your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, Truly I say to you, today you shall be with me in paradise. It was now about the sixth hour, and darkness fell over the whole land until the ninth hour, because the sun was obscured, and the veil of the temple was torn. And Jesus, crying out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Having said this, he breathed his last. Now when the centurion saw what had happened, he began praising God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. Steve, would you pray before distributing the cup? In the same way, after supper, he took the cup also, saying, This cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink of it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. Lord God, we are immensely blessed to have a loving Father like you, Lord, that knows us knows our every thought, knows our struggles, intervenes for us, Lord, and in numerous ways throughout our lives, as we look back, I'm sure many of us can think of, what would I have been if the Lord had not come into my life? What if He had not intervened? What if He hadn't sent angels to minister to my needs? Lord, as, as we think of those with us and amongst us and near to us, dear to our heart, Lord, and Dear to you, Lord, we pray for them as they, as they struggle, as many of them are suffering in darkness, Lord. Letting anyone here know uh, that is struggling, Lord, let them know that you love them, that you're near them, Lord, that you know everything about them. You know about their faults, Lord, you know about their needs, you know how you've gifted them, Lord. Let them know that you love them. Lord, confirm uh, in their hearts, the truth of the Scriptures, Lord God, that, uh, that you love them enough even to sacrifice your own Son. Lord, as we depart, as we celebrate the resurrection of Christ, 
rising from the grave in victory, conquering all darkness, Lord God. Help us to live in a way that magnifies Him. Help us to live a way that draws other to, others to that light. Lord, it's such a privilege to be your representatives left here on earth. It brings us purpose. brings us a reason to love. Lord, help us in our times of need. Help us in all that we do. We ask it in the holy name of Jesus Christ. Amen.